You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Hi, everybody. We have till 4.30. I think, I feel like it was this exact classroom two years ago. Were any of you here two years ago with me when I talked about this? Were any of you here? Oh, weird. Okay. So it was before, it was like this room became a test kitchen uh, for my book that I was thinking about writing at that time. And as a result of that dialogue, some things actually got in the book that wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. And that's why I really appreciate this, uh, this conversation. I'm curious to know how many of you in the room are, uh, are n- the non- non-worship leader pastors in your church? Are any of you, the, not, not the worship leader, but a, a pastor that's? How many of you are the worship leaders in your church? Okay, okay, all right. And how many other? Is there any is there any pastor and worship leader teams that have come together? You're both. You're a team with yourself. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. Well, right. Um, it's it's often the case that it's it's one person. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. Really glad to be able to talk about some of this stuff. I think what I want to do with the time. Uh, is briefly try to overview a little bit of the vision of the book that um, you all can read, not as a selling point, but as just kind of like a macro picture of what the vocation is that I'm trying to develop in the book, and then leave a lot of time for just Q&A and dialogue. What I want to do is, is the book is split up into chapters that are descriptive metaphors of what I think worship pastoring is all about, and I want to throw all those metaphors at you and leave them on there and then have you all just start to dialogue with about it. I'm curious to know how many of you have read some or all of the book thus far? Oh, so this is like an advertisement. Like, if, if it goes well, you'll get it. Um, well, that, okay, that, that changes things a little bit, but um, that's good. Um, I, I know it's only been out like two weeks, so to expect that people have read it is a little bit audacious. Um, I want to begin, I want to pray, and then I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then hopefully pass it over to us having a a dialogue together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks that you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light by the power of your Spirit through Jesus. Um, And we ask that you would be pleased to show us what you want to show us, call us out. I I pray that you would reveal to us the ways in which we can engage our calling more pastorally. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So the burden of conceiving of our jobs uh, pastorally is very personal to me because it's part of my own biography. Before I knew I was going to be a worship leader and a music leader in a church, I felt a pastoral call on my life. I grew up in a wonderful uh, evangelical church in the Southern Baptist tradition in Hawaii. Uh, and I was on a student ministry retreat in the 10th grade, and I was reading the scriptures. And I was reading that portion of Jesus calling the disciples and telling them to leave their nets. And it was a very charismatic, supernatural moment where God kind of said directly to me in a non-audible voice, but in a voice that was very clear. Um, from the time I was three until that moment, I thought I wanted to be an architect. Come on in. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an architect. Uh, I liked drawing. I liked angles. I liked precision. 
I like things, you know, finishing well. So it's perfect for a candidate for ministry, right? Like nice, clean. Um, and God said in that moment, I want you to leave behind your conceptions of what you thought you'd do with your future. And I, and I want you for pastoral ministry. And I was, it was out of nowhere. Uh, and so I went to my pastor that next week and I said, hey, can I meet with you for an hour? And can you tell me everything that, pa tell me all about pastoral ministry in an hour, you know? Tell me what it was like. And he did it. He just did a great job. He sold me on it. And I just felt like, I think this is what I'm built to do and who I'm called to be. And so um, I went before my church that next week. And as is common, at least in the Southern Baptist tradition when I was growing up, when you're making big life decisions, you go before your church. And so I went before my church and uh, I said, I'm committing my life to, to pastoral ministry. And my ex-girlfriend at the time was nanny nanny boo-booing me and telling me that, you know, I was just on some, like, high and kick, so in your face, girlfriend, it's for real. Um, I'm still here doing it. And so I knew. I knew I was going to go, and, and at least the vision at the time was, I'm going to go to seminary and get an MDiv. I don't know what I'm going to do for my undergrad, but I think pastors get these things called Masters of Divinity, so I'm going to do that. So I just had this vision for my life that I was going to be a preacher, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to visit people in the hospital and just do all that classical pastoral ministry. At that same time, um, God started cultivating musical gifts in me. And I started leading music for my youth group because no one else could play the guitar. Uh, and so I learned how to play the guitar and started doing that. And God kept on getting me throughout college and throughout the seminary. I, I studied music in college because it seemed like a good counterpart to all the brain stuff that I'd have to do in seminary to, to exercise different facets of my brain. So I studied music. Um, and the jobs that I kept on getting were worship leader jobs in churches. And for about seven to eight years, I was wrestling with God, um, asking the question of, God, when, when am I going to stop doing this? And when am I going to be what you call me to be, which is a pastor? Um, somewhere in the middle of that wrestling with God, there just came a few crucial moments, a, a few crucial mentors, a few crucial books that sort of hit me all at the same time. And God slapped me over the head and said, you idiot, you're already a pastor. Don't you see that what you're doing is having a shaping effect? It may not be the vision of pastor you thought. And you know, you, know, you may not have the title of capital P pastor in your denomination, your tradition, or anything like that, Zach. But what you've been doing is pastoral work. You've been shaping souls. The, the decisions you make have ramifications on the discipleship of the people that you're leading. And all of a sudden, this world kind of opened up to me of new reflection on what I was already doing. It wasn't like I suddenly changed everything I was doing. It was as though the angle at which I was approaching the things I was already doing shifted. And I, I was looking at it uh, from a totally different angle. And the more I started living in that reality, and then I got ordained and did all that pastoral stuff, but uh, the more I started living in that reality, and the more I started seeing the fruit of thinking in that category, um, I just, I started having conversations with other worship leaders like you and like me that, that were my age, that were sort of young and up and coming and maybe the first to have grown up in the purely contemporary church and just imagine that, that we, we for ourselves were, were there to lead worship and to kind of be rock stars and we'd aspire to the position and then got it and then realized it wasn't all it was cracked up to be and wasn't as glamorous as we thought and that there was some hard work and then we were about two or three to five years in going, is this all there is? 
there must be something more than this. There must be deeper. And so either at that impasse, the worship leader would quit and go into sales or business or go get a MBA or something like that. Uh, or they'd, they'd have this kind of crisis moment where they shifted their, their thought. And I was having conversations with worship leaders who were going through this same, I think what I'm doing is affecting and shaping people kind of stuff. I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm nervous that I'm, I'm holding a baton of power that's wielding more than I think I deserve to wield because I'm seeing the effects of the songs that I select, of the prayers that I pray, of the structure of the service. And I'm getting a little nervous that a lot's on the line when I do this. Like, I was feeling like worship leaders like me were waking up to that. And we were all starting to ask these things. And then I just listened to a few voices that were telling me that's, that's the edge and itch of pastoral ministry haunting you. Um, and so from that, I started sort of kind of logging different ways that I was reading and different aspects of uh, thought that helped me to see my job pastorally and sort of re-envision the stuff that I was already doing. Eventually that, that got into pages of notes and they, they, were, they were in blog posts here and there because I was sort of live streaming my journey in a way through my blog of, of thinking theologically about this stuff. And all of a sudden I found I had more or less an outline of a vision. Um, and then I was hearing Tim Keller's great advice, which is no one should ever write a book until they're 50. Because inevitably, uh, you know, if you write it in your 30s or 20s, you'll look back on that and say, I was, that's stupid, that's ridiculous. And uh, wisdom and age gets you something that uh, youthful vigor doesn't. And I really took that seriously. So I thought all these notes are just for my own reflection and my own dialogue. Um, and then a pastor called me up that says, hey, Zach, uh, I've seen some of the stuff you've written on your blog, and we're looking for a worship leader like you that thinks pastorally about this stuff, because we feel like it's important. Um, help us to find someone. And uh, do you have any leads to help us craft a job description? I said, well, it's funny. I had these notes about my vocation that have just been sort of my personal notes, but I'll just email them to you. And he read them and said, uh, why, why haven't you put this in, in a book? And I said, well, Tim Keller kind of says, you know, and, you know, we all worship at the altar of Tim Keller, for goodness sake. So, uh, uh, and he just said, I think this, you know, I think this book is for a certain time in the life of the modern American Western evangelical church. And some people need to hear this now. And it was sort of the spirit-filled conversation that put me over the edge. Um, and then God, through a variety of providential things, helped me to get the necessary pieces together. A publisher, you know, um, people who could coach and mentor me on how to put a book together and how to pitch it and things like that. And so that ended up being the worship pastor. And two years ago, I had that outline. And I kind of went through it uh, at the Docs and Theo conference. And you could go back and almost see how the evolution has occurred if you listen to the stuff that we were talking about. Because some things changed as a result of that dialogue. Um, and I just found that it was the things I was saying and hearing from other people say as, as we rehearsed them before one another was truly helpful in us thinking through it. And then in turn, when I was talked to non-worship leading pastors who were sort of the counterparts to these worship leaders in their churches, to hear this vision of what their counterpart did totally um, shifted their own conception of what ministry could look like. 
I was just talking with a church planter recently who, you know, when you're planting a church, you're usually thinking about, I'm the solo planting pastor and I need to find a good worship leader. And uh, man, wouldn't it be great if we had more money for more pastors, but we've only got me and one and my worship leader. Well, what if you imagined your worship leader as your co-pastor? Imagine the sort of resources that would be at your disposal. as a pl- And he, he said that book, uh, that my book did that for him. It helped him to see that I actually am planting with two pastors and I want to find someone that can do this. So um, I really believe that, that these, these offices, unofficial offices of worship leader and pastor, were never meant to be split. And in, in the introduction of my book, I talk about maybe some historical reasons why it's the case. I think there's something that happened in, for instance, the Second Great Awakening in uh, the mid-1800s that's, that caused us to think that every great church has a dynamite preacher and a, and a, and a, like a crooner, you know, a really good guy that's going to make everybody swoon and warm up for the sermon. Like that whole conception, that's Second Great Awakening language, and we have been bequeathed that model. Um, and I think just other things about music history, even predating the Second Great Awakening, have started to split what, when I see, you know, when you look in the scriptures and you see uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, God called out of his people a particular group to be sort of the, the pastors that would lead everybody else in what it meant to uh, devote one's life to God and to worship God. And then out of that group of Levites, God grabbed some to be the worship planners and the musicians from within the priesthood, right? So there's something about pastoral ministry that's inherent in musical leadership that, you know, and something about musical leadership that's inherent in pastoral ministry. And um, I, I just saw it in music history too, time and again, that the church's earliest songwriters were pastors, were theologians, you know, were bishops, were people who oversaw. And it's only in, in recent times where people who are writing the songs for the church aren't, aren't the, the pastoral figures of their day. Uh, but for us, this is, the, this is the ocean that we swim in. This is, this, this is the sea, the salt water that we know. And yet it wasn't always like this. Uh, and so the burden of the book is to, is to try to bring us back a little bit to what this would look like. Um, and so I want to walk through the metaphors and then just open it up for the kinds of questions that I've already been getting about it that expose some tensions and expose real issues for the people in their local, uh, local churches about this. But I would say, I want to say this first. As we cast this vision, this doesn't mean that you need to have pastor in your title. It doesn't mean that you need to be viewed by your church as a capital P ordained minister, pastor type, right? The burden of, the, of it is actually a little bit more modest. It's just to say what you're already doing is small p pastoral ministry. And the sphere of thought I want to give us is just like Luther and the Reformation gave us a conception of the priesthood of all believers. That in a way we're all priests before one another, right? I want to cast a similar vision for the pastorhood of all worship leaders. That just by virtue of our calling as Christians and then the fact that we're in the positions that we are, we are already engaging in small p pastoral ministry. So I hope that the result of this isn't a burden of some of you to feel like, goodness, if I don't have pastor in my title or if I'm not ordained, you know, I'm somehow either not fully who I, I should be or, um, or my church doesn't understand what I do. The burden is to say, you're already doing pastoral ministry. Just be more intentional about it. That's kind of the, the vision for it. Uh, so I want to walk through 
a few of those, those metaphors. These are the chapter headings in my book to kind of give you teasers of what each topic hits. Um, and so the worship pastor is uh, a church lover. It's someone who resembles the classic churchman or churchwoman. He or she uh, pass- passionately loves their local church and empath- empathizes with rather than runs from her wounded and wounding nature. Someone who genuinely loves the local church. A worship pastor is a corporate mystic. Someone who zealously believes that when the people of God gather, God is really present, really present in a special way and for special purposes. And who contagiously spreads this faithful expectation throughout their congregation. A worship pastor is a doxological philosopher. Someone who refuses cheap answers to important questions about worship. Who doesn't just make choices in worship because they work. Who asks why about everything and then operates out of those philosophical convictions. A worship pastor is a disciple maker. Someone who doesn't believe that ministry exists in compartments. Like the old adage, the church is supposed to be about three things, worship, discipleship, and evangelism, but actually believes that worship is the center of what it means to make disciples. I think Mike Cosper, someone tweeted something that Mike Cosper said today. He said, worship is the, the ground zero of spiritual formation. That's that same idea. A worship pastor is a prayer leader. Someone who understands the whole service as one long congregational prayer session where God speaks and the church responds. And I'm talking about everything from the sermon to the ordinances or sacraments to the singing to everything about it. It's one long prayer session, right? The worship pastor is a theological dietitian, Someone who treats service planning like meal planning. Thinking through the short view, the long view, and ways to motivate and increase faithful theological consumption. A worship pastor is a war general. Someone who understands that worship is a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Who leads worship like a general under the warrior king, Jesus. A worship pastor is a watchful prophet. Someone who faithfully wields the word guards against heresy, helps the people of God see the future, calls out idolatry, disturbs complacency, and watches out for the marginalized in worship. A worship pastor is a missionary, someone who understands the mutually life-giving relationship between the church's worship and the church's mission, who believes in the missional power of vibrant worship. A worship pastor is an artist chaplain, someone who, as an artist herself or himself, understands the unique angle on life that artists have and builds bridges between the church and the art world, both for the sake of the artist and for the sake of the church. A worship pastor is a caregiver, someone who understands worship service as the ground zero of pastoral care diagnosing the root of all our sickness and delivering the cure in meaningful, comforting ways. The worship pastor is a mortician, 
someone who prepares the body of Christ for death, the end, the other side, helping people, helping the people of God to be a hopeful, kingdom-minded people and eternally focused, eternity focused, sorry. The worship pastor is an emotional shepherd, someone who neither fears nor haphazardly manipulates the emotions of the congregation, but pastors them in worship toward faithful feelings, oriented to all the highs and lows of the gospel's story. A worship pastor is a liturgical architect, someone who recognizes the one story about Jesus that church history has historically told throughout the generations, crafting contextually appropriate worship sets or liturgies that tell that story. A worship pastor is a curator, someone who selects and displays worship's materials, like music, prayers, readings, preaching, sacraments, transitions, obsessing over the details of the presentation, but never losing the forest for the trees. And a worship pastor is a tour guide, someone who recognizes that across traditions, worship needs to flow, taking into consideration worship's ambiance and their own philosophy of leadership in the moment of worship. So these are kind of the 16 metaphors and vignettes. And really, I'd love to, rather than just try to blast through them in a way that almost cheats, I'd rather just talk about what you heard that piques your interest or what you want to hear more and then just walk those rabbit trails a little bit with you or even some questions that come about even from just what I've said and we've got plenty of time to jam um, so I welcome I welcome questions you were able to work in that architect thing after all <laughs> yeah right right exactly yep yes well that's what I point out in the book right uh, that was that that part in in the, where I said I realized that my architecture call just was going to take a different shape yeah you know so, nice. I like that. Yeah. So how do you uh, pragmatically, practically speaking, marry the worship between the pastor and the worship staff in terms of the liturgical architecture? How, do you, how does that work on a practical basis? You're asking the question, how does, I'm repeating this for the recording, how does the relationship of pastor and worship pastor work on a practical basis? Are you asking about those two individuals in particular? Like, how does that function in planning and leading a, a worship service? Yeah. I don't think one size fits all. Uh, and one of the things I want to say about worship pastors that I know will come as a result of people's reaction to the book. Like I think, for instance, of this model that's very prevalent and I think is just fine in some churches, which is uh, an artist-in-residence model for the person leading music who don't want to assume the pastoral mantle and, uh, and would feel burdened by it. Because I've talked to some of them that are like, you're making me feel pretty burdened by this book here. Uh, and what I'd like to say is, well, some of the things, I want to challenge you a little bit, artist, by telling you that some of the things you're already doing are pastoral ministry, whether you know it or not. So there's an edge to it that you've got to understand. But number two, I think that the worship pastor isn't necessarily an individual. It could be a conglomeration of people that think pastorally about worship planning and leading. And so in that sense, an artist in residence and a, a non-musical pastor function together as, as pastoring worship to their local congregation. And so I think the way, uh, I don't know fully 
how that works, except that I'm interested to see how the, the if, if pastors and their worship leaders read this book together, what it's going to do to some of the synergy and relationship. Because there's an interesting dynamic here. There's, it's, it's a multifaceted problem that worship leaders don't view themselves as pastors. Because part of the, part of the onus goes on the real, the real pastors that they haven't viewed that role that way. Part of the onus goes on the congregation that no longer has pastoral expectations for their worship leader, right? And part of it is on us. And so re-envisioning this is like a whole church operation. Um, and so I guess I, I imagine the way this working together is if pastors, formal pastors read this book and go, oh my goodness, my worship leader is pastoring people. We need to get together. Maybe the pastor will start to invest in the theological training of their worship leader by meeting with them and like, hey, let's read this book together and let's dialogue a little bit. Or hey, let's talk about the structure of a worship service and how it's theologizing people. Or let's talk about the theological diet. Let's look at our songs together and start to do this pastoring work together and being willing to take those long views of worship planning and leading. Or let's talk about the main theological issues that will be sticky for our church to navigate and how we need to watch out for them in our songs. Like how can we, how can our antennae be up about that kind of thing. I imagine that it, it will yield just more relational uh, connection between worship leaders and pastors to do this kind of stuff. And I don't know if that fully answers the question, but um, yeah. What else? Yes. So um, I'm really interested in like, when you say emotional shepherd. Yeah. You, you talked about, one of the phrases you used was faithful feeling. Yeah. And I, I've watched your book, Jump Start with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Emotional Shepherd is, my, is, I think, my favorite chapter in the book because um, I haven't heard anybody develop it quite like this yet, and I think it's a really important thing. At least for me, in, in, I'll give the backdrop, then I'll try to answer your question. For me, in, in an per- ordained minister in Presbyterian circles, we are very suspicious of emotions. We, there's a history of us, especially in the United States, as a result of the Great Awakenings, being very cautious about the way emotional manipulation goes hand in hand with leading people away from the gospel. You know, it's something that that Jonathan Edwards wrestled with. It's something that Presbyterians and Puritan, people in the Puritan strain wrestled with. So so our default response has pragmatically been to be hands-off with it. And what I've come to realize is as I look at the scriptures and I hear the scriptures saying we should be shalomi, in the way that we think about ourselves, whole beings, that God uh, has created us, mind, body, will, intellect, emotions, as one package to, to love God faithfully, that um, our abdication of Im- faithful emotional shepherding and just saying emotions need to be subdued in a worship service and, and pressed down, or at least that's been our functional response, is, is a kind of emotional shepherding that's just as toxic as the kind that says, I'm just going to you know, pull your heartstrings wherever, and I'm going to manipulate you, and I'm going to use this, this sort of uh, you know, musical stuff to, to create an affect that's going to get you into a certain place and make you feel good thoughts. I, I think that there's bad pastoral practice on both ends. And what I want to say is that um, we cannot avoid, and we don't want to avoid, um, the emotions in worship. We want them engaged. We just want the feelings to be faithful feelings, not faithless feelings. And so what I try to develop um, is a sense that 
perhaps what we need to, how we need to be thinking is not about how not to be too emotional, but by allowing or trying to create context where a congregation is, a, is allowed or guided to feel the right things at the right moments. And so what I mean by that is if, if our liturgy, and this is kind of predicated, for instance, on a gospel structure to a worship service, is that if I want people to imbibe the feeling of the gospel's narrative more deeply, I want them to feel what would be an appropriate feeling in that moment to have. So, for instance, at the beginning of a worship service, when uh, oftentimes the people of God are, we're, we're trying to cre- create an atmosphere and utilize texts and words and prayers and scriptures that draw people's eyes to remember how great and how powerful God is. When we're trying to, you know, highlight the attributes of God, highlight how God is other than us and make God uh, great and all those sorts of things. What kind of emotions accompany that sort of experience? Joy, elation, celebration, awe, wonder. How can I utilize the affective tools that God has given me to allow for those feelings that are appropriately tethered to that liturgical moment to arise in the people of God? And that's where I think it's different than manipulation. It's actually saying God has wired us to be affective beings who are moved by affective things like music. And that's where musicology and science comes into this whole thing of the intersection of art and anthropology. Where I can say, maybe it is that a driving kick beat will help my heart beat in rhythm with one another, you know, with other people. And may, uh, you know, maybe it is that bright, brilliant keys uh, and uh, loud music is appropriate to sort of surround me and overwhelm me so that I, in addition to singing immortal, invisible, God-only-wise, I not only sing overwhelmed words, but I feel overwhelmed feelings. Why? So that maybe when I get to the point of being overwhelmed, just like Isaiah, who was emotionally overwhelmed in the presence of God? When he said, holy, I, you know, he said, I, I can't describe it. It's like John in, in Revelation 1 and 2. It's like, I can't quite, it looked like a rainbow and jasper. It looked like these things, but I was, it, it, you find John fumbling for words because he was overwhelmed, right? And so I want those emotions to be there in that moment. Uh, and then, like Isaiah, when he encountered God, um, the, the, next, the next emotional moment was dread and fear. Because he had, he had realized, I have encountered and, and come, I've stumbled upon the living God. And I am a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It just, it naturally flowed out of him. The, the litur- he didn't have to walk through the liturgy. The liturgy walked to him and approached him and attacked him. You know, and that's the way you want the worship service to kind of feel. is very naturally moving in this, this story that we all have to engage in when we're approaching God. And what did Isaiah feel in that moment? He felt uh, dread, he felt fear, he felt shame, he felt contrition. And um, so when it comes for the time for confession, what kind of emotions are appropriate to that moment? Well, the things I just listed. And then when when it comes time to preach into that moment, to interrupt confession with the word of God, the fiery coal from the altar that says, See, your sin has been atoned for. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What what do you want people to feel? Uh, what do you want people to feel in that moment? Freedom, elation, joy that was even higher than the joy at the beginning of the service, right? So there's even an emotional contour and levels that start to emerge. 
And so I'm thinking as a worship leader, how can I aid and abet that gospel story emotionally with the affective tools that God has given me? You know, and here's where the rubber meets the road. It, the goal is that as people feel those appropriate feelings, they, they start to approach the rest of their emotional life, Monday through Saturday, faithfully, so that when they're watching uh, the presidential debates, for instance, uh, instead of the knee-jerk political reactions, when they're hearing a conversation about injustice, because they've learned in worship what to do at the moment of being confronted with injustice, which is to cry out to God, how long, O Lord, and to lament before him, that it becomes more Pavlovian and instinctual to feel a faithful Christian feeling in that moment of, of the appropriate indignation and the appropriate sense of sorrow because they've been shepherded through those contours week in and week out in the worship service and how it shapes us. And that's very different from either saying, I just want to get people to feel things so that they'll love Jesus more, you know? Uh, that's sentimentality, emotionalism, emotions for emotion's sake. And it's very different than saying, I'm scared of, of these emotions and, and I don't want to be caught making people feel what they don't want to feel. I want to be a shepherd that helps people learn how to engage their emotional life Christianly. Right? And so, how can I do that? Well, I might actually have more power than the pastor <laughs> who preaches a sermon. But I, I, on the other hand, am a part of the rest of this service that employs a, a lot more effective tools than just preaching and rhetoric. You know, as powerful as that is and as, as singular as the preached word is. And, I mean, my goodness, we're in a con conference that's talking about the Reformation. And preaching cannot go by the wayside. But, at the same time, you and I wield incredible tools that can be used to help people, you know, uh, experience faithful feelings as opposed to not faithful ones that have formative impact the rest of their life so that instead of when they hear about injustice in, in society, flipping out and freaking out, you know, and feeling anxiety and sub-Christian feelings, their emotions have been taught to feel those faithful feelings of unrest and crying out to God. You know, when it's time to celebrate, they know what it's like to feel celebratory, and they're able to rejoice when they see God do something providential in their life. And uh, they can be a Christian with the fullness of what it means to love God with all our heart and our emotions, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I want to surround myself with it, but I feel like it's not something that people react well to. 
You're not conventional in that yeah, way. I'm not yeah. Yeah. That concept of the the singer, guitar player, like frontman. Well, that's part of the burden of this book is to say it's so much more than just musical leadership, um, and and that kind of frontman, and even the stuff that I was talking about, this emotional shepherding. That's in the worship planning and in the musical arrangements. And that has nothing necessarily to do with you being the upfront person. And a great model of this over, over years now has been Mike Cosper. If you know the situation of, of the way Mike Cosper led, he was never an upfront guy. But he was the worship pastor. He was actually shepherding all the upfront folks. And he was casting the vision. And he was helping to shape uh, worship according to the gospel and help people understand these sort of emotional contours and everything else. Uh, and, and the hope would be that as if people kind of engage some of these concepts, they'd realize that there's a whole dimension to worship leadership that has nothing to do with the physical standing in front of people moment, even though I spend a fair amount of time doing that. Uh, so I, I hope that if anything, you feel that something like this makes you feel affirmed that there's a, a ton of pastoral and leadership ways that go beyond that and you know, congregations need to be educated as much as worship leaders do about this. Yes. Um, the corporate mystic. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read the book. Uh, could you flesh that out? Yep. And is that tied to the emotional shepherd itself, just that aspect of just Definitely. Definitely. The idea behind corporate mystic, and some chapters were sort of speaking to some traditions a little bit more than other chapters. Like, I, this, the corporate mystic chapter is going to uh, itch Presbyterians a little more, and people who are a little more uncomfortable with talking in experiential terms about God's presence in worship, or at least not all Presbyterians, in, in, but some. You know, people who are, you know, think theologically about worship and, and make sure our theological T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and stuff like that. We tend to be a little suspicious too much about talking about God's presence because, you know, or that leads us, right? Uh, and so the, the burden is to say, um, is to say, hey, don't forget. God's, you, read the Bible. When, when the people of God gather, God chooses to do special things to, to make his presence more felt and known. And yeah, again, God is omnipresent. So it's not as though somehow he's absent everywhere else and only in worship. But God sets aside corporate worship to do some unique things. And so what I develop in the chapter is to give a, give a charismatic perspective on, on, uh, on worship, that God's truly there. And part of our jobs is to help shepherd the expectation that when I come with the people of God to gather and worship, we can expect that God is going to be d- present and doing active work on us and in us through his word. And then where I challenge the charismatic perspective and try to fill it out is to say, what's funny about Christian traditions is you can almost see how each vein of Christianity has emphasized a certain section of worship as being where God's presence is. And we need to listen to all these voices. And so I split it into three parts and I say, um, we need to listen to the, uh, the charismatic voice that reminds us that God is present when we sing. And I believe that's a biz- biblical concept. And, you know, uh, because of that emphasis, a lot of t- times where many of us who are, aren't from that tradition are nervous about saying that, you know, singing is because it gets close to being sacramental. You know, some of us have problems with that. And I would say that you read the scriptures and there's something unique about singing where, where God chooses 
to display and manifest his presence there, and it's worth not abandoning that perspective. But then I say, but God is also, and this is where we need the reformational voice. God is present in preaching. That, that when, when the preacher, as broken as this person is, is preaching the word of God, God is choosing that moment to be uniquely present to his people and to do an active work. And so I believe that preaching is actually a charismatic moment too. You, you know, we don't stop feeling God's pre presence the moment preaching occurs, but actually God is doing a work in the words of the reformers to uh, bring death and life, to kill and to make alive in the Pauline language of of Romans 3 and 2 Corinthians 3, these uh, kind of categories that Luther uses of law and gospel, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so there's, a, there's this very concrete way in which I feel the word of God working on me in the moment of preaching. Very, and, and so God's present there. And then the more sacramental traditions remind us that God is present in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that we can find God ministering to his people in a special way there. And I think that there's an angle for everybody to kind of gain some perspective on. It depends on what tradition you come, which emphasis arises. But um, the listening to the global church and, and the Bible and what it says about those three things in particular, preaching, the sacraments, and singing, or the ordinances and singing, uh, leads us to the conclusion that God chooses these things to be present in a very special way. And part of our job is to build in our congregations the anticipation and expectation that I will encounter the work and the person of the living God in those moments, you know? Yeah. Yes. Right. Or because he does, uh, or like when mm -hmm. he's with the choir or the band, that's when he's pastoring, and then he and then he goes out. You know, that's when he's pastor. But no, like this is everything leads to this. Yeah. That's like this is when I'm the pastor is more when the doors are closed and I'm preparing and mm. when I'm in front of you all, mm. making you sing these words. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that would, that would be helpful to my pocketbook at least yeah. a little bit. Um, I'll I'll, t I'll tell you what um, what my experience of that has been. When I worship lead in a pastoral when I lead worship in a pastoral manner, I almost don't need to prove it. Um, and this was made clear to me when I when I went to a church uh, and started serving at that local church, and 
uh, previous leaders weren't obviously pastoral in their approach. Yeah. These are, this is the feedback I got from the congregation. I so appreciate the way you lead. I feel like I'm being pastored by you. you know? And I didn't have to feed them my book or an outline or uh, a perspective on it. When, I think when you do it, people feel it. And uh, it, it's a slow process, but there is something very special. And I've seen this in all kinds of contexts. I've seen it in very performancey looking contexts where it's like lights and haze, but the person in the front knows what their job is. And it totally changes the whole dynamic of, of the ball game. And it's almost like I don't even want to worry about criticizing all the accoutrements of worship because it's like when you've got a pastoral worship leader at the helm, it covers over a multitude of sins, you know? There really are a lot of issues that get resolved when that perspective changes. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's just pie in the sky. I really think if, if we're behaving and operating in a pastoral manner and leading people pastorally through the worship service, people feel that. And uh, eventually, they were, I don't, I've never seen a moment where people have gone like, hey, you shouldn't be pastoring me right now, you know? Um, it, no, one, no one will object to being led you know, to the feet of Jesus, and, and uh, you know, no one, no one will object to be to someone who's, who loves them and who's pastoring them. I, I've never seen that. So I think that it, it kind of does solve itself, and you almost don't need to prove, the proof's in the pudding, you know? Yeah, yes. Have you encountered any reaction yourself or heard of any reaction to uh, teaching pastors, senior pastors, uh, who maybe are territorial about the office and role of yep. pastors? Yep. Uh, yes. And I think that this could end up cause, causing tension in some churches. Um, I, I tend to think that if, if those senior pastors suddenly feel threatened, they need to do it. I mean, what's funny is whether they know it or not, their worship leader has been past, they've been making pastoral decisions. And there's been a shaping effect on what their worship, and part of it is that pastors need to own up to the fact that we have abdicated pastoral oversight and responsibility to the state. You worship leader, do your thing, and then I'll do my thing. And, you know, we'll do it together. And so uh, it almost, it exposes part of the problem of that model of worship leader, you handle this, and I'll handle this, and ne'er the twain shall meet. And I'm not saying that, uh, therefore, you should have planning meetings together and everything like that, but there's a level of understanding that the whole of the worship service is a discipleship pastoral encounter and uh, yeah, but I, I don't think, I think there's going to be some like territorial tension here. Yeah, yeah. I, I do hope that it, it yields conversation. And I half think that, you know, a lot of the tensions that worship leaders and senior pastors feel are tensions uh, that result from the fact that we both realize that we're wielding important power. And... We're doing things to the congregation by virtue of our upfront ministry, you know. Um, and there is that tension, even though clearly the, the org chart and the hierarchy of the church says this person's in charge. It's like functionally on Sunday morning, two people are simultaneously pastoring the congregation. And the question is, will they do that as a pastoral team? Will they do that in competition? Will they do that uh, in ignorance of one another's ministry? Yeah. Back on the uh, 
Yeah. 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 Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. So I guess they need to talk even more about like how we can capture our people to see this is a different this is a different sense of God's presence here maybe than yeah. you on your own, like obeying God in our gathering and coming together collectively to make much of him. Um that's I I struggle to sort for how do we capture our people to understand that this is different. Yeah, I think it's there's a partial theological work and teaching that happens outside the service. Um, and that teaching sounds like this kind of language, that when the people of God gather, God has chosen certain means in which he will ordinarily be present to his people uh, in special ways, that he reserves for those moments that he doesn't do anywhere else. Um, so that does mean that there's something special about when the people of God gather and sing a song versus when you're on the top of a ski slope with a hill song in your earbuds. There's going to be a difference because God chooses to do something special. So I think the language of uh, that God, God um, chooses to set aside certain things that happen in worship in which he will be present to his people in unique ways that he chooses to be in no other ways ordinarily. You know, I want to leave, I want to say ordinarily. I think it's an important word because it leaves room for these supernatural inbreakings in the moment. But God says, the ordinary way that I'm going to regularly sort of minister my, the central presence of me and my gospel is in the gathered corporate worship of the people of God. Uh, and then I just think it's, if, if you're serving a congregation that doesn't get that and maybe has lost the fervor of the expectation that when I come, God's going to be here and do things on me, that you lean aspects of your song choices and maybe the way that you, uh, if you have a moment to offer a word at the beginning of worship, just say, hey, brothers and sisters, as we gather today, let's not forget that God chooses to be among us in special ways that he doesn't. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would give us uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, that God is here and wants to work in us and through us. Hear now the call to worship, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, interestingly, we buckle or, or bristle against this, like, inviting God. That's actually historic language of the church. If you, um, you kind of research church history, what's typically called the invocation. The invocation. There's a real sense. And it's not, again, um, I, I think it's, I think we can authentically say, uh, Holy Spirit, be present among us today. And, and what we are saying is help us to recognize your special presence with us in these moments. And I think the utilization of a lot of language around that helps us to theologize it, but not overly burden it by like, uh, you know, Holy Spirit, be present with us. Footnote, you know, you're present with us in this way, and, you know, and all of a sudden you, you're, you're educating instead of worshiping. Uh, and, you're be, and you're kind of, I, I wrote a blog post recently about um, killing killing worship through over-explanation, which is unique. I, I did this all the time. As a Presbyterian who just wanted to get everything right, it's like, and now we enter the moment of confession. And like Isaiah said, blah, 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 blah. And I would just start to explain, like, we should feel this way because once we've encountered, and all of a sudden, we're not worshiping, I'm explaining worship, you know? Uh, and I just killed it. I killed the journey a little bit, you know? And there needs to be a healthy amount of theologizing without... 
um, disengaging the actual encounter. Kevin. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's why you lose the artistic element. It's, you know. Right. Like I like Great line Planner O'Connor was asked about one, one of her stories next. She said, if I can tell you that, I wouldn't have that story. Hmm. There's something irreducible about artistic form. You still want to honor that, right? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kevin Twitt of Indelible Grace. Like everybody. This, I, woo! Good word. Good word. Yep, honoring the forms, being true to the forms. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Pastor of Arts, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know how much you address yeah. that in your book or not, but um, as it relates to, like, just visually cultivating artists, I feel like that's a whole murky, I mean, outside of it is. music and just being a pastor, yeah. I feel like that's pretty clear cut, but then there's this whole other world that, yep. I don't know how much biblical basis, I mean, there is, yep. but in terms of, like, what's fallen into this role, and even how much should we continue to put into it as yeah I mean I think God has given uh, arts to humanity to be a part of the, the way that the, the big thing that we all sort of shake our heads at is why schools kill arts first in a program, right? Because there's something inherent to humanity that's, that's artistic and that needs those. Like I, and I, part of, I think, our job as the sort of artistic pastor in our congregation amongst our people is to remind our people of the necessity of that aspect for the sake of our whole spiritual lives. Um, and you have to be sensitive because different traditions, because of church history and battles that have been fought, have different perspectives on arts. And so you always want to start with wherever your church is at, you know. Um, and if they're kind of timid, if they've come from a strain of, of Christianity that's very suspicious of the arts, I do think the pastoral approach is, you know, as someone well said, if you're too far away as a leader, if you're too far away from your people, you get perceived as the enemy. You know, is that I'm, we're fighting a battle here. My leader's way out there. Is that my leader or is that someone I need to kill? You know, and a lot of times we lead so far ahead because we're like, this is where we should go. And I'm way out here and all of a sudden the congregation is like shooting me down. They're shooting me down because I don't look like I'm on their side. And part of good pastoral ministry is, is being the appropriate distance ahead so that they know it's still you and you're with them. But you're kind of pointing that way. And that's kind of a broad and nebulous answer and the other thing I say is that I, I do think we have a unique call to minister to the art community of our local areas and, and minister to the artists. And I try to offer a philosophy of ministry to artists that's honest and non-manipulative. That's not trying to sort of, I, I kind of use, I begin the chapter by saying, because this was a wake-up call to me when uh, I had an artist in the church that I served. First time we went out to pizza uh, together at this awesome New York pizza joint in Fort Lauderdale. He, uh, 
he said to me, I want to tell you a story. I used to work at this church, and every week the pastor would bring me into his office and say, and he used a southern accent. He was like, how is your walk with Jesus? You know? And he just, he said, I, and it really scared me, and I got so tired, and uh, it, I just felt like this pastor was always trying to make sure that I was getting better and uh, doing more. And I think artists have been really burned. If they've encountered the church, they've been really burned by sort of feeling like, hey, you brought me in to do music, or you brought me in to do this, and now you're kind of bait and switching me. And there's a lot of suspicion about that kind of stuff. So can there be authentic relationships where we're not always trying to manipulate them to be followers of Jesus, but intentionally loving them and waiting pastorally for those moments when the crises hit or when they're asking the deep questions to be able to do that and being faithful friends and listeners. Um, and the reality is that many artists and artistic communities are marginalized from the church because the church doesn't understand. And we're the best bridge builders because we at least there's a half of us that understands what it is like to, uh, to think to be a, a, a more vocational creative, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's ask a dumb question, but I'm, I'm losing you. Are, are you saying the artists that you bring in that are part of the service? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So like you're bringing in non-Christian musicians? Well, I think that it's a pastoral decision that you need to wrestle with. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes I'm referring to Christian artists who feel still alienated and don't fit the kind of churched mold. And aren't, and aren't, to save their lives, going to be necessarily desiring to go to Bible studies and in small groups and in D groups and cell groups and, you know, the YouTube video, right? Um, they aren't in those kinds of things. And how do we minister faithfully and well to them that increasingly don't fit those classical, traditional molds of the way we sort of walk people through discipleship? Yeah. Uh, not only them. I'm also talking about just people in the community who are artists, um, who need support, um, who need love and pastoral care to be a missionary to artists by being the kinds of people that will go to art galleries and engage with musicians, local musicians or local artists, simply because, you know, among our church, we're the most in tune with the arts, most likely. You know, unless there's another, maybe a, if your church is big enough and you have a graphic designer, that's another kind of artist and thinks that way. There's a special call there, I think, for us to engage the arts community, not just bringing them in, but being a missionary and engaging them outside the walls of the church. I mean, it's been super cool. Like a bunch of the Christian artists that I've worked with who are, uh, are professional musicians that I've worked with in the past, as a result of me going to their gigs, I've gotten to know their musician friends. Uh, and we've hung out. And uh, there's been great sort of ministry opportunity and just genuine reflection of Christ to those people and in those moments. So I, it's kind of all in the above. Yeah. You had a question back there. Did you? Yeah. Um, real quick, for doc doxological philosopher, um, 13 years ago I received Christ and it was in a very charismatic, emotionless church. And only until the last, I'll just pack it in years, or the first 10 years I spent a lot of time really leading from that foundation. And only in the last two to three years have I really been getting into church history Somebody like me, who, who doxology and theology are, are becoming more of a, a, I don't know, they're new to me. Where, yeah. where do I start with that in my church? Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're doing it. It sounds like just the, the questions. I just think it's, uh, it starts with asking good questions. And part of when I start that chapter, I just say, we, if we aren't doing this already, 
about our worship practices as worship leaders. We need to just start asking why and allowing that question to go where it will. Why do we, why, why do, we do this in our worship service and not be satisfied with pragmatic answers? Like I, I need to know that there's a good biblical basis for this, you know? And those questions, when you ask them, will, will spark the conversations that drive you toward developing a philosophy about X, Y, or Z. Why do we, uh, why do we choose to um, pay professional musicians as opposed to use, using um, our volunteer musicians from a church? Or why do we not do that? Now, there, hopefully there are biblical and ministerial and contextual reasons for doing it. Instead of just doing it, there's a reason, there's a why uh, behind that. So I, I think it's as simple as that. And I, I, I believe in it, when those questions are asked in community with your other pastors that you guys can search the scriptures and, and uh, be able to start to answer those questions. And oftentimes the why questions hit you when congregation members come up to you and like, why? And you're like, I've never thought of that. I need to, I need to think about that, you know, and have the humility to do that. Last question before we're done. Yep. Yeah. Well, they're not sort of ordained by their church. You know, they they're not called a, you know, uh, a minister of the gospel or you know, I don't. I actually don't ne- think it's necessary to get hung up on titles to do pastoral work. It does. It does. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that when we start to have these conversations, it, I think it behooves the worship leader to start looking at the qualifications of pastor and elder a little bit more seriously. Um, I talked about that in, my, in the last chapter, the worship pastor as failure. Um, and just talk about how maybe it is that formally because we're not ordained and we're not called an elder in our church, if that's the case, or called a, a pastor in our church, formally those qualifications don't apply to us. But informally, by virtue of how much we are pastoring, we should pay attention to them as general rubrics worth following and worth looking at and seeing you know, if, if uh, there's a degree of, of how our lives conform to those standards. I think it's... I wouldn't want to ever say, worship leaders, you know, you have to fall under Titus and Timothy. But I wouldn't want to say you can ignore them. I'd say that uh, when we start thinking of ourselves more pastorally, we realize that some of the same things that apply to formal called elders of churches um, should apply to us. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it.